Hi there. I'm so excited to welcome you to the Arthritis Life Podcast, where we share arthritis life stories and tips for thriving with autoimmune arthritis. My name is Cheryl Crow, and I am passionate about helping people navigate real life with arthritis beyond joint pain. I've been living with rheumatoid arthritis for 20 years, and I'm also a mom, occupational therapist, video creator, support group leader, and I created the Room to Thrive self-management program. I am so excited to help you live a more empowered life with arthritis. We're going to cover everything from kitchen life hacks to navigating the healthcare system to coping with friends who just don't get it. Seriously, no topic is going to be off limits on this podcast. My interviewees and I share our honest stories of how chronic illness affects our lives. This includes discussions about mental health, sex, shame, pregnancy, body image, advocacy, self-acceptance, and so much more. You'll hear stories from all ends of the spectrum, from a person who's living in Medicaid remission from psoriatic arthritis to somebody living with severe mobility restrictions and severe pain from rheumatoid arthritis. You'll hear how people manage their conditions in different ways, like medications, mindfulness, movement, social support, work accommodations, and so much more. You'll also hear from rheumatology experts who just get it. We'll dive deep into the science behind chronic pain and what's the latest evidence for lifestyle changes that can help you thrive with arthritis, including exercise, sleep, nutrition, stress reduction, and more. This is your chance to sit down and chat with a friend who's been there. Ready to figure out how to manage your arthritis life? Let's get started. Okay, I am so excited today to have Wendy Hawkins, who is someone I've only ever talk to over social media before. So now it's fun to talk in real time. <laughs> How are you, Wendy? I'm doing great. It's a beautiful day here. Oh, awesome. And yeah, can you just um, give the audience a quick introduction to yourself? Like where do you live and what is your relationship to arthritis? I currently live in Mesa, Arizona, and I was diagnosed with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis when I was just a baby. Um, I lived in Pittsburgh at the time. And so my parents um, were concerned at six months old, I started having all of these different symptoms, like I didn't want to eat, I cried all the time. And I started to crawl funny around that age where you start crawling, and I would favor, you know, one arm or hand over the other for crawling, I would crawl on an elbow on one side mm -hmm. and also favored a knee. So they took me to a doctor and I, I don't know, I was diagnosed, misdiagnosed, I should say, with something called housemaid's knee. <laughs> and I don't oh. know what that is, but, and I don't know how a baby could have it, but yeah. they thought that I had it and they put my legs in casts, which is the worst thing that you can do yeah, yeah. for somebody with JRA. But this was in the late sixties and they mm -hmm. didn't know much about it back then. And so, um, Eventually, my parents got um, directed toward a pediatric uh, rheumatologist at a children's hospital in Pittsburgh. And he took one look at me and he knew uh, or he suspected that it was juvenile rheumatoid arthritis and did the blood work and it all came back positive for that. So at that point, there really was no medications for kids. At, I mean, I was only a year and a half old by that point. Um, so they, you know, basically told my parents, all you can do really is just put her on lots of aspirin, start her on wow. baby aspirin 
until she's old enough to have uh, lots of regular adult aspirin. And that was it. And then the other thing he said was, and if you can, she'll do better if you could live in the desert Southwest, <laughs> which is what brought my family eventually to Phoenix, Arizona. Wow. That's amazing that they had that dedication to bring you out there. Um, yeah, I think they didn't um, enjoy the winters in Pittsburgh. Yeah. Uh, and um, I think they were definitely open to, you know, charting new territory. And we, we first had to go to Baltimore and we lived there for a little while. And then we had to move to California uh, to San Francisco. And that's where I went to kindergarten. Okay. After that, at the end of my kindergarten year, the transfer to Phoenix finally came through. And from first grade on, I lived in Arizona until I graduated from college. Then I moved back to California, the Bay Area. Oh, <laughs> my job. I love, I love the Bay Area. Yeah. 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 And, you know, you were saying, you know, you, this was back in the sixties, kind of sixties and seventies, um, in terms of like your throughout school, I'm assuming what were some of the kind of highlights and lowlights of being, um, this is the, like your life story, I'm sure, but you know, being a young person growing up with this condition. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, the thing is, um, so I feel really lucky. Um, the grade school that I went to here in Phoenix, um, the kids accepted me. They, you know, they, they did not make fun of me or pick on me or anything like that. I, I mean, I hear the horror stories of today yeah. and I feel like, man, I was so blessed because these kids were all so supportive. And, um, at that point, you know, like when I was going to early elementary school, I couldn't walk the distance from our house to the school, so my mom would pull me in a wagon and my sister would walk, wow. you know, and then at school, if I had to go like to the music building or the art building, which was farther away from where the classrooms were, or even the cafeteria, my classmates would fight over who got to pull me in the wagon. Oh, <laughs> they all wanted so to pull great. me. So they were very supportive. And I just, I loved it. And I felt like I had, I had a really good time, although I had this disease and I couldn't really do PE. That was the other thing back in those days. It was very different. They said, you need to rest. You need to not do all this physical activity. And so I never got to do PE with my classmates and I would go and do art. And that's how I got involved in, in loving art. Or I'd go work in the library and help out the librarian um, when PE was happening. And the only time I got to do PE is if it was a rainy day and we all had to do something indoors and then I got yeah. to participate. Yeah, no, it is. It's really fascinating how, like, I mean, you could see in, in general, it seems a little bit intuitive. If you're, if you have a lot of pain in your joints, exercise doesn't seem like the best thing to do at face mm -hmm. value, you know, but now all this research shows that you know, the stiffness just gets worse right. if you're immobile, right? So yeah, but you didn't have a chance to even experience that because everyone was telling you not to, you know. Yeah, exercise. it was a totally different. Everything has flipped now for what they tell children who have JRA. Mm -hmm. And um, I would say that that's a big benefit. You got you to gotta move, you know, motion is lotion, I always say, because it keeps mm -hmm. your joints moving. Mm -hmm. And, you know, of course, if you're in a flare or if you have something really 
serious going on, you, you have to temper the movement, but you should yeah. still try to move as much as you can in the other joints, you know, um, it, it really helps. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things I hear a lot from the um, children with JIA, even today, juvenile idiot, they're calling it idiopathic arthritis now, not juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, um, but is that they had to miss school due to fatigue or flare ups or, you know, getting sick due to their immune systems being a little out of whack. Did you experience like periods where you had to miss school or were you able to keep going? I didn't have any long periods okay. of having to miss school. Not that I can remember. Um, I always felt like, um, everybody got sick, but I didn't because my immune system was so overactive. It, there was uh, nothing, there was nothing tamping it down. So my brother and sister would get sick all the time and they both got chicken pox. And I was sitting right next to my sister in the back seat of our car right before she broke out in chicken pox the next uh -huh. day. So I was like right next to her during her most contagious time and I never got it. So uh -huh. I, I, thankfully didn't get sick a lot, but sometimes, you know, the arthritis, um, would keep me home. I think it happened more in high school. I struggled more in high school. Once the hormonal stuff started kicking in, okay. Okay. then I had a harder time and the fatigue, I remember being really bad. And I got bronchitis a lot when I was in high school, oh, Okay. but okay. as an elementary school student, I did, I did quite well and didn't miss a lot of school. I loved school. I, I was I a bookworm too. and a, all that nerdy stuff. <laughs> yeah, I, I did too. Oh, that's, I just, I love that you had such a supportive community because I, it is, it is kind of possible. I think so often we hear these, you know, sob stories and those are legitimate. I mean, I've had them on the podcast and that's, you know, there's not to say that, you know, each, everyone's story is valid, but I'm sure it's relieving for some people to hear. And that's what my story was really positive too. In my twenties, I got diagnosed um, but people will be like, oh, was it but people like peer pressure you to drink and do all these things or like not respect that your body needed a rest at times. Right. And I'm like, not really. No, my friends were like really supportive. They were actually, they had seen me get really sick and not know why yeah. and then get diagnosed and they saw me rapidly get better. So I was diagnosed in 2003 and immediately put on methotrexate and Enbrel. Mm -hmm. So I was like, when in fast-tracked into medicated remission. And so they're like, she's, this is, this diagnosis is working for her. Like it's help, you know, the treatment's working for her. Yeah. So and, anyway, but, um, but, but yeah. So you're you said in high school, you struggle more. That's, there is this interesting hormonal connection mm -hmm. with inflammatory arthritis. So, um, so at that point, were you struggling with mobility at all, or were you able to get, um, like, how did you get around? Like, I'm guessing that you didn't have friends to like, or you didn't have a, did you have a wagon? No, no, no. Okay. I, was gonna say, I, I definitely I'm... was able to walk more okay. by that point. Okay. And, okay. Um, you know, I, what I remember most about high school is um, I felt more and more socially isolated and shy. I became more and more shy and insecure. Um, it was definitely the hardest period of my life. Mm. I think high school is what I, what I categorize as the roughest point. Um, mm. Because I was surrounded by so many more new people, not just the, the nice close knit group that I had from elementary mm -hmm. school. And I really couldn't compete in keeping up and doing all the sports or cheerleading or right. all those other things that, you know, typical high schoolers do. Yeah. And um, 
I did get around pretty well. I mean, I had to ask for a top locker because I couldn't really bend down. There were little accommodations that I had to ask for. I know we had stairs to go to upstairs classes, but I think I remember that I had an elevator pass. So I was one of the few people that got to use the elevator. Yeah. So there were little things like that that I did. Um, But I just remember more and more feeling insecure and um, socially isolated. And I, I mean, I did not ever meet a person my own age that had this disease until yeah. I was 26. So from wow. my whole childhood, I felt like I was the only one. And I, I mean, I know now I'm not <laughs> clearly, right, right. but it, it was a very hard feeling because I did have a few very close friends, but um, most of the kids didn't understand you know, it it was, it was harder in high school. And I imagine it's like, they are kind of, um, the world is like opening up to them in so many ways. And then maybe your world starts feeling a little bit more limited and that's, yeah, that's really hard on top of just the insecurity everyone feels as a teenager, you know? And yeah. And, and my body was changing. I was getting deformities in my my knees, my fingers, um, my toes, um, Mm -hmm. my jaw. um, I I just because I was unmedicated until I was 17. Honestly, I was only on aspirin until I was um, 17 years old. And so I remember my fingers would curl up, especially this is my claw hand. (laughs) And um, they would curl up at night when I slept. And I remember taping barrettes to them at night to try to keep them from curling um, because I wanted to try to stop it, but I I really couldn't stop it. And uh, my family didn't know anything about the Arthritis Foundation. This was, um, high school was during the 80s, the early 80s. Oh, okay, okay. Um, I was trying to do the math. I'm like, wait, so. Yeah, yeah. so (laughs) I, I, I was in high school from 81 to 85. Um, but it was, um, so we just didn't know, we didn't have the resources and we didn't know that these other things were available out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that led to, you know, um, I have a lot of damage because yeah. of, of those times and being untreated. Well, and there just weren't as many, there weren't hardly any treatments or there was like gold yes. shots. Like what was the first treatment you did at 17? Well, at 17, I, I went into a really, really, really bad flare. And my, fa- my father finally took me to, he found a adult rheumatologist who was willing yeah. to take me on. And yeah. he, I remember he put me on Decadron first, okay. which mm-hmm. is a, like a little more powerful steroid mm-hmm. and oral gold. Right. And I think sulfasalazine, if I'm remembering correctly. Now at that point, biologics did not exist. Right. And at that point, they had methotrexate, but they started you, again, it's different. They started you at the least aggressive medications, and then over time would only move you up to the more aggressive, which I think methotrexate at that time was considered the most aggressive. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't until I started working after college that they put me on methotrexate. So now it's different. Now you get, it's better to start with the most aggressive and like your experience, get you into a medical trans or medication remission, right? 
yeah. and, and try to slow down the progression. Whereas back in my time, that was totally opposite. They, they let you slow roll right into so much damage. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's hard. Like, it's like no better, do better. Right. Right. <laughs> but yeah, they just yeah. didn't know. And it's, right. yeah. If you have ever felt completely lost or utterly alone while trying to navigate real life with rheumatic disease, listen up. I am here for you. I created an educational program to help you go from overwhelmed to confident, supported and connected in a matter of weeks. And it's called Room to Thrive. After earning a master's in occupational therapy and completing hundreds of hours of additional training, I created a step-by-step guide to help you truly thrive with rheumatic disease. This is the only program I know of that's designed to improve quality of life for people living with inflammatory autoimmune forms of arthritis, like rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis, Sjogren's disease, and more. During the self-paced lessons, you'll learn how to manage pain and fatigue, cope with stress, navigate relationships, and continue doing the things that matter to you and bring you joy. The goal is really to help you improve your quality of life and learn how to thrive with your rheumatic disease right now, rather than waiting for a distant day when it might be cured or healed. I really created the down-to-earth, practical, heartfelt resource I wish I had had when I was first diagnosed at age 20. If you want even more in-depth support, you can join the 12-week Room to Thrive virtual support group where you'll be surrounded by people who actually get what you're going through, people who will provide the encouragement, validation, and support that you deserve. Each group is expertly moderated, so you don't have to worry about the kind of misinformation that spreads like wildfire in the free-for-all social media groups. If you're on the fence, don't just take my word for it. Here's what Katie had to say in March 2023. I was lost and overwhelmed with my RA diagnosis. It felt overwhelming to know what to read, what to do, how to spend my energy trying to research on the internet. Room to Thrive did that for me. It's been like getting a crash course in my diagnosis along with a community who gets it. To see all the details, including the dates for the next support groups, go to the link in the show notes or bit.ly slash thrive room with a capital T and capital R. You can also just email me anytime at info at myarthritislife.net. And don't delay if you're interested because each group is capped at 16 people or less in order to make a small, intimate group atmosphere. Thanks so much for your time. And I can't wait to get started with the next groups. And I can't wait for those of you who are interested in the self-paced option to go ahead and join that at any time. Bye-bye for now. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And I'm, I'm glad you were still able to get it under control enough to go to college. Did it, did that your condition kind of affect, I'm assuming like what you were thinking about for a career? Like how did you choose your career? Yes. That was a big factor. Honestly, I loved art from the time I was a child Mm -hmm. and I wanted to be an artist. That was like always my dream, but I came to the realization in high school that, um, Starving artist is a, a phrase for a reason. It's hard yeah. to make. It's hard to make money as an artist, and it's hard to get medical benefits. Yes. And I knew that I needed to work for a big company that yeah. could provide good medical benefits for me. And it was right around that time in the '80s that computers were starting to come into um, 
into more everyday life. Um, and so my father, he was on the hardware side of fixing computers. And he said, you know, you need to use your brains more than you're going to have the brawn for the type of job that you're going to do. So, you know, he started to teach me basic programming and, um, I, I took classes in high school for, for programming and I realized that I liked it. I mean, I, I have this real artistic side, but I also have a very analytical brain um, side of me that loves the challenge of a program, doing programs. And um, yeah, so that's, that's how I ended up getting into programming and software development. That is so neat. And I think I remember learning something, I'm going to, I'm probably going to butcher this, but that like, like music and like many arts are like kind of like math fundamentally mm-hmm. like there's there's like a logic so I, I wonder if that yeah that seems like it makes sense to some yes. degree yes and, and I know my husband's an electrical engineer but I know for him he really likes um being able to see what he's created like yeah. to make something that's somewhat tangible and I think with art that's one of the benefits of art right is that you're like I made this right <laughs> I guess the same with a computer program but Right. Um, so where did you end up? Uh, were you working at like a large software place or? Yeah, actually, um, while I was, uh, I got my degree from Arizona State University okay. and I was, you know, researching different companies and I learned a lot about Hewlett Packard and I felt like, oh, they're, they're my dream company. I made that like my target goal was mm-hmm. to work for Hewlett Packard. And um, I loved that they had um, such a great culture, corporate culture of teamwork and integrity. And I love the inventor story, like, you know, Bill and Dave, (laughs) Hewlett and Packard and and how they came to create their company um, and the way they treated their employees. Mm -hmm. Um, So um, that was my goal. And I got I got lucky (laughs) and I got to work for them for my whole career. That's amazing. Did you do it? Have any like special tools? This is the occupational therapist in me, but did you have any special like ergonomic tools that helped you um, at the computer? Um, you know, I, I definitely had to have my computer desk set at the right height for me. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And I needed to make sure everything was at the right height. And that like when I, when they were giving uh, us laptops to, to carry and to travel with that, they gave me the lightest one. Yeah, um, I had to have, you know, special mouse and rest, um, wrist, rest, wrist. I don't know what they're called. Yeah. You probably wrist do. Rester. I actually am. Yeah. I'm blanking right now. <laughs> wrist pad. Yeah. I don't yeah. Yeah. I had to have that kind of thing. And, um, and they were really good at flexible, letting me work from home once we got, you know, the technology was there more to have wow. us work from home. Um, and so, yeah, they were really great to work with me if I needed anything. Um, and when I needed to take uh, medical leave to go have a joint replaced or have some sort of surgery and be gone for months for the recovery, you know, um, they were really, really fabulous at working with me on that. Wow. That's great. Cause that's a huge question. A lot of young people have, have asked me, you know, what are some like quote unquote, arthritis friendly careers, you know? And I'm like, Mm -hmm. I usually do say something like, you know, if you can make sure it's flexible, that's like one of the keys, right? Cause you just don't know how, if you're going to flare up. So, but that's pretty cutting edge at the time that they were so good about, you know, flexible work schedule and, um, 
remote work. Cause I mean, there's even, it's 2022 and there's still companies that are like, we don't want you to be remote. You know, <laughs> I know. Well, you know, what's interesting is that it happened more as you got um, toward the late nineties, as globalization was taking over, mm-hmm. because then it turned out that you really weren't working with the people that you sat with in a building, because I would be on big projects um, with people and programmers from all over the world. So we were all in different time zones, all having to call in to these, the meetings were all on the phone, basically, we're all on conference calls, no longer would you go into a conference room in the building Mm. with the people that you sat near. Um, So it made it more doable, if you had to be on a call with Singapore at 6am, you know, then you need to have that access at home, and you need to be able to do those things from home, or if you needed to be on late at night with a, you know, another country like Germany or something, then, you know, all of that got, got factored into basically um, it felt like we had to be on the computer all the time. There was no more nine to five. There was no set lunch time, no set dinner time because everybody was on different time zones. And so it became like, we were supposed to be on like the internet and work all the time, which that eventually is- led to me not being able to continue working because it was, it was too much. It took every ounce of my energy. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I like, I'd like to hear if you want to share more, like how, how did that evolve? And was it hard to make that decision? You very, know? very yeah. hard. It was, I loved what I did. I loved the career that I was in and I was in like what I consider my perfect job. You know, I was the IT tech lead on these big global supply chain projects. So I would, you know, be the, the lead tech person that has all the different programmers working under me, Mm. but really interfacing with the business side and, and helping make sure everything that we understood all of their requirements and then translated it into all the code And then I loved testing and my programmers uh, didn't uh, always appreciate me trying to break their code. (laughs) That that was always the fun part is I'm going to break it. This is what testing is. We have to prove that it works. And in order to prove that it works, you have to throw all these different hard cases at it to try and break it. Right, right. And so I loved it. I loved my job, um, but I did not love... Uh, having to work so many hours and I did not love not having the freedom uh, or the energy, I should say, to eat healthier and exercise and all the things that would have given me more balance in my life. Yeah. I just felt like every, every little ounce of my energy was zapped after, yeah. after my work day. And it just got to the point where I was really, really unhealthy and I got an infection that my body couldn't clear and I got really nervous. And I Mm -hmm. thought, you know, this is going to kill me if I don't slow down, if I don't like make a decision to think about my life in a different way. And Mm -hmm. um, the, the question of stopping work is always hard, I think, because we, um, we attribute who we are to what we do. Mm -hmm. Right. And once you take away that job, uh, like this job and this career that I had worked so hard for, um, 
it's it's difficult because then you're like, okay, who am I after that? Right, right. And and when you go to a party or you go meet new people, the first thing they say is, what do you do? Right. Yeah. <laughs> and people talk about their jobs, and so what do you say when you don't have uh, that that cushion of a job anymore? And so it, it is, it's really hard. And financially, I wanted to work longer to save more money into my retirement. You know, I, I knew in my mind that I probably would not be working until I was 67 years old, right? I just, mm -hmm. I knew mm -hmm. that that really wasn't realistic. Mm -hmm. So internally, I had set a goal of working until I was 45. Like if I mm -hmm. can make it to 45, you know, then I feel like I could, I can um, feel more secure. Mm -hmm. uh, but at 35, I really started struggling. Yeah. Yeah. It's really cutthroat. I mean, and it's not an easy job to do part-time, you know? I mean, no, no. <laughs> and because, because you're responsible for systems, I mean, if it goes down in the middle of the night, you're up and you're working yeah, on it yeah. when most people are sleeping. Right. So it, it's not an easy career. Yeah. I you know and like on the one hand, I'm like, oh, that sounded so good. They were so accommodating and you could do it remote. And then you're like, wait a minute, actually, if you look at all the details, it wasn't so good. So yeah. So um, so I think you the phrase you used was medical retirement. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Okay. Is that an official thing? Sorry, I did I meant to look this up earlier. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I think it I don't know if that's I mean, I think some people call it different things okay. as euphemisms to make it sound better. Um, okay. yeah, yeah, but, um, you know, I mean, I'm on disability, let's be honest. And a lot of people have a lot of baggage around the word disability. Mm -hmm. Right. And, um, yeah. and I don't necessarily like that baggage. Yeah. 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 Was, um, I know a lot of people have questions about, you know, the process of going on disability. I know we could probably talk and, and potentially rant about this for a long time, but do you mind sharing, was it a difficult process to quote unquote, like successfully go on disability or was it smooth? I had a very smooth experience. Okay. I can't, I cannot say that mine is the norm. Yeah. I got approved right away. I mean, my files are feet thick. Well, you know, yeah, and all, it's a, testament to what you've been through. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, actuarially the way they look at it in insurance and in, in these kind of things, you know, someone who's had JRA since the late sixties, most mm -hmm. likely has a lot of damage due to the fact that there were no medications back then. And there were, right. the treatments weren't, you know, what they are now about keeping your body moving and all that. So, mm -hmm. um, actuarially, you know, they said, oh yeah, she's, she's disabled. Yeah. And, and yeah. I, I mean, I did fill out all the paperwork. It was actually easier and smoother and quicker for me to get on social security disability than it was to go through the process at my company for their long-term disability program. And oh. I, I always recommend people who are working in corporations or any, any work that offers disability insurance, be sure to take it. Because yeah. you never know, even if you don't have a disability, because you cannot live alone on social security disability or social security retirement, it's just not enough. Mm -hmm. And so um, I always paid into the program and I paid up for the higher percentage 
pay payment, monthly payment, if I did happen to go on disability, because I knew most likely for me, that was going to happen. It was going to be before I was 65 that I'd have to stop working. So it, it took two years to go through their process and mm -hmm. I had to fill out a lot more paperwork and a lot more doctors. Uh, my doctors had to fill out forms and paperwork and um, it was more grueling than social security. Social security, wow. you know, I was approved within three months. It happened really fast. Wow. Well, and that's, I mean, I used to do new employee orientations. I used to be the facilitator at University of Washington Medical Center for employees. And that I, so I got to hear the spiel every two weeks over and over for two years. <laughs> about, and one in our, the, the, the man who spoke about benefits and insurance was made a really compelling argument week after week, or, you know, every two weeks about, you know, he gave an example of like a 21 year old whose dad had made him sign up for the long-term disability. And he got in an accident and the whole rest of his life, he was able to get those benefits. So anyway, mm -hmm. I, yeah, that, that sticks in my head. Um, really, yes. but, but in your case, I'm sorry, as it, it is a very dehumanizing experience. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but to have to prove yourself, you know, over and over again in these appointments and these documents. And I yeah. wonder if you got punished for like functioning or in a way felt like punished for functioning so well or pushing yourself. Do you know what I mean? Like where it's like, oh, well you could do it. You could do it last year. Why can't you do it yeah. now? Yeah, I actually, you know, I don't know that I've, I, I can't say that I have felt that, Oh, good. but I still have to go through reviews with oh. HP every, it used to be once a year and it, you still had to like, I had to list all of my doctor's appointments, send them all of my doctors, answer oh all these God. questions. And I'm like, okay, I understand. They want to make sure that people aren't not disabled anymore. But I'm like, if you look at the history of what I have, it's not, it, it is a degenerative disease. It doesn't get better. It's not it's like I'm going to wake up five years from now and be cured. Even if there mm -hmm. is a cure, I have so much damage mm -hmm. and just operating in daily uh, basic grooming activities and normal daily activities are, is exhausting to me. And I have yeah. to use a lot of tools and aids for it. So um, I feel like that part is really dehumanizing. Mm -hmm. And now it's every nine months, they switch to a different company that, you know, it's like, it's ridiculous. I feel bad for my doctor having to fill out forms every nine months for somebody who's not getting better and will never get better. And I feel it's such a waste of their time. How couldn't it be financially worthwhile for them to employ these people to do all this work of reviewing these forms when, do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, how many, they, I guess they must be catching enough people and not having to pay for yeah. their disability that it's worthwhile for them. Otherwise they would just be, it feels like they're like flushing money down the drain potentially. If it's yeah, a I mean, chronic, that, yeah, I think that's the point. Their point is to try to get people to get off of them, off of their, yeah. their having to pay for their disability. And um, because, you know, they can kick you off just for your doctor not signing the form in time or sending the yeah. forms back in time or, Jeez. you know, like it's just it, it's it's a racket and it feels I feel immense stress every time I have to go through the review again, mm -hmm. because it's not that anything has changed if, you know, I get worse and worse each year, but, you know, 
it's being at their mercy, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Of having to do all this work every, like, I don't mind doing the work. I, I could say I have time to do the work. I'll send them every detail about every appointment that I have all year long um, with every doctor. But I don't like them bugging my doctor because she's busy. She's got to help patients. And yeah. having her have to fill out this same thing, and it's always the same, nothing changes in the answers that she's giving. Nothing changes. It's all the same. If anything, it gets worse. And it's just to me like such a waste. And sometimes she doesn't get it done on time, right? Yeah. Because she's got all, all these other things to do. Yeah. So I feel like it's just, it is stressful. I don't yeah. like it, but it's the oh. game. I'm so sorry. It really, it really is. There should be, I think, like exceptions for, you know, um, progressive conditions. Yeah, I think Social Security has a way that they rate um, your disability, like unlikely to improve or likely mm. to improve. Mm -hmm. And I'm in the unlikely to improve category. Yeah. So I think I get reviewed maybe every five to seven years, something like that. I see. Yeah. And, and so it's much less frequent and they already have all my records, right? Okay. Because they have all yeah. of the appointments. So I don't have to do a lot of work on that. Um, it's a pretty easy review. Um, but the, the corporate disability, you know, is, um, it's a much harder process. Yeah. I'm so sorry. It's just, I really, one of my little triggers or anger triggers is yeah. Like, I mean, there's many, but one of them is like unnecessary, you know, unnecessary work. I'm like, yeah. I am always joking to my husband. I could have written the great American novel, you know, and all the time <laughs> it's taken to do X, Y, Z, you know, get the prior authorization. And yeah, right. it's just, I resent it. You know, I resent it. And on yeah. top of the emotional part, like, I mean, in your case of talking about like, you know, feeling like you're under a microscope every nine months and and you're just, it's like, they're making you actually have to confront all these things that are getting worse when, you know, I, I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You're dealing with that, but on a, on, on a, maybe a more enjoyable to talk about note, um, I wanted to ask a little more like about your experiences with art and oh, yeah. how, you know, as a child, you loved artwork. And now I, it sounds like you've, um, used certain kinds of art to, um, you know, just to help you with your journey with, um, do you still refer to it as JRA? That I do. Your, yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So I, I do. mean, you still, but I mean, like it's confusing because it's like, you're not a juvenile anymore, but you still get that diagnosis. Yeah. It's, yeah. It is still my diagnosis code. If you look mm -hmm. at my medical records, it, okay. it is juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. That's been my diagnosis code all the mm -hmm. way through. They, they can change the name all they want. Exactly. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I don't, I don't call it that. I, I don't, I just right. refer to it as JRA or juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. Um, so for me, you know, uh, as I said, it, it, the art, my love for art started when I was a kid, it was the one place where I could just be free and I could do, um, I could create something nice or beautiful. Um, and, you know, I did art all the way through high school um, I also took art history in, in college and I loved, I loved everything about it. Um, and because I decided not to use that as my career, I just kept it as my special therapy, basically like this is, this is how I express myself. This is what I love doing. And, um, 
once I got to California, I started, um, number one, I started volunteering with the Arthritis Foundation and got involved in, you know, a juvenile arthritis task force where we did lots of different um, events a year, two, at least two events, a social event and a, like an educational event for the kids mm-hmm. and their families. And, um, and then I also, around that, a short time after that, I, I got involved with a healing art class. It was taught by, um, she was 84 at the time, an 84-year-old British woman who was just like the essence of um, unconditional love. She was just amazing, just absolutely amazing. And she started teaching this class about mandalas and how to use mandalas for healing art. And I, um, I started going to her class and I loved it. I thought, wow, I'd never heard of a mandala before. I knew you could use art for therapy. I'd been doing it for a long time, just internally for myself. Right. right. Um, and, and also, you know, doing craft projects with the kids at the JA events. Um, but this was like a whole other thing where it is, um, it's, it's about like getting uh, like quiet with yourself and meditating. Um, so mandala, the actual word mandala is a Sanskrit word, which is an ancient language and it means circle. So most art that you'll see that are mandala art is circle. It's contained within a circle and the circle, you know, from a, like, um, a representative of a symbol, the symbolism of a circle is wholeness, like the circle of life, the wholeness, everything contained in one. Um, and so the way, um, my teacher, would teach the class is that we would pick a a topic for the week and then we would have a discussion about that topic. And then she would come up with several different meditation type questions about that topic. And we would sit and we would meditate for a little bit, um, thinking about whatever question that we chose, we'd draw a circle on our paper and on the back, we'd write the question and then we would meditate on it. And it was amazing when you got quiet, like the images that might come to you or colors or symbols, and, um, and then you would paint or draw or whatever it was that your medium of choice yeah. was. And a lot of times you'd get an answer to your question. <laughs> that and is it, fascinating. It's amazing. So I, I always came to believe that um, <clears throat> when you get quiet with yourself, you'll be able to tap into some of these under, you know, like peeling back the layer of like all your different, um, maybe your woundings or mm-hmm. your joys, your passions, your sadness. Um, and it starts to come out in the art. And um, even if you're not an artist, it's not really about being an artist and drawing like the perfect heart or anything. Yeah. It's about expressing yourself, like just mm-hmm. going for it and expressing whatever it is through color, through image, through, you know, design, whatever. And sometimes though, uh, what was fun is that you might not get the answer to the question that you asked, but you'd get the answer that you needed. Mm. It would still come through. And I love that. it was so great. It was such a great healing tool for me and all of us. So you would start, okay. So you would start with 
the question and you would draw a circle and then on the back you would write the question but then you would not draw anymore for a minute or for a few minutes you would meditate right. on the question okay right. and then you'd start <clears throat> drawing the images and things that came up that's so funny. right yeah our mandalas i'm sorry I'm, I'm like totally a mandala like newbie um but i've seen i have my my son has a we have a coloring book thing where it's like it's pre-outlined for you um, like a coloring page basically, but, mm -hmm. um, in, in your case, would you just, is it always like a repeating pattern, mm. you know, where it, okay. It can be whatever. It can be anything. Okay. 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 They do. I mean, <coughs> excuse me. I'm going to get a drink. Oh yeah. Yeah. Please, please, please do. I'll pause. For My voice getting. Oh, totally. Any, anything you need go for it. <clears throat> yeah. So, um, <clears throat> a lot of times what you'll see out there are mandala coloring books. Mm -hmm. And so they're, they're pre-drawn designs that are very relaxing to color um, because you don't have to think about what to draw. You just kind of color in the different patterns and the designs. But when you're making mandalas for like the healing purposes, you really can just do anything. It can be, it's not necessarily a design at all. Sometimes I'll get flowers in mine or trees or fish or, you know, uh, house. I mean, anything and uh, anything goes when you're okay. making a mandala for healing purposes. That's so cool. That's so neat. And I, I really have noticed like an artistic streak in a lot of people that have autoimmune diseases. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, I keep thinking, is this like a selection bias or something where like, I just happen to be <laughs> encountering people with this or, um, but, but yeah. And have you, uh, in your, in your experience, do you have a favorite medium, like watercolor versus colored pencil? What, what do you like to use? I'm definitely watercolor. Yeah. Ever since I was a kid, watercolors are my favorite. And I think it's because you can't hide a mistake. Like I, that's you, why they're my least favorite. <laughs> no, I know <laughs> that's what everybody says. That's what everybody says. It, no. it is one of the hardest mediums. Um, but it also flows easier. I find it easier on my arthritic hands and shoulders and, and neck when I'm doing a lot of art, you know, I get really sore, mm -hmm. um, but it flows easier. I mean, you don't have to work so hard, like with oils or acrylic sometimes. Um, but mm -hmm. you can't hide mistakes. You have to accept the mistake. And I'm, I'm a recovering perfectionist. So yes. it, it is difficult. A lot of times when I finish a painting, I will feel like I only can see the mistakes that I made. And most yeah. people will never notice. They don't see it, right. but I do. And it's taught me a lot about having to let go and, and love the imperfection of it all. I, I love that. Perfect perfectly imperfect <laughs> yes. is that that's my one of my mantras <laughs> like, yes you know um and yeah oh that's so great I, I was just thinking we should maybe uh if you want to share any of your completed mandalas I could like maybe put them on the episode page or something I don't know or if you have a, do you have a website I do have a website. Oh, okay. Okay. Oh, sorry. It's, you probably already gave it to me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I gave you <laughs> the website. Or, it's, organized. it's called moonlightmandalas.com. Oh, yeah. Yep, and yep. it's my blog site. And so back in, oh gosh, shortly after I moved back to Arizona, after I stopped working, mm -hmm. I, I finally did create a blog site and um, I did a lot more writing about the mandalas. I, I, for a couple of years now, I have not been active in it. I had a lot of medical issues from mm -hmm. 2017 forward. 
So I do apologize if anybody goes out there and sees that my latest posting was 2016, but we all understand. <laughs> there's a lot of information out there on describing mandalas. Um, you can read through and look at some of my older mandalas that I've done and like what they mean, like how I've interpreted what, what the answer to the question was and what their mm -hmm. meaning was. Mm -hmm. And then also I have some instructions, you know, like step-by-step -step how to create them. And I think I have, um, I think I have a list of questions that you can ask yourself. When you have your book, Inner Landscapes, A Personal Journey of Healing Through Art. Yes, I do have a self-published book. I love uh, I wrote about the mandalas after I had started doing mandalas and was talking about them with friends. I kept getting the message that I should write a book about it. Yeah. And I was very resistant to that because I'm like, I am not a writer. I'm a programmer <laughs> and an artist. Yeah. I don't know anything about writing a book, but eventually that message kept getting louder and louder and mm -hmm. louder until I could not ignore it anymore. I mean, and I think, you know, I try to tell this to my son because, um, sorry, I'm just, I'm, I'm moving my sit to stand desk to stand mode for a second. Okay. <laughs> I just got a notification time to stand. Um, but, <laughs> but I tell my son, you know, that I always loved writing, but, and I, I think for some people it's, it's intimidating. And I just say, it's just talking, it's just talking. Mm -hmm. but writing it down as you're, and yeah. like, you, you know, you express when you express yourself very well. So, you know, um, but yeah, I think it's, it's intimidating because you kind of feel like, who am I to write a book or a blog or, right. you know, make a yeah, video. Well, this, this was happening as I was still working, you know, that yeah. I was yeah. getting the messages because I was doing the, the mandalas throughout, you know, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. my work career. Um, but I feel like, um, it's actually kind of an interesting story how how I came to write it. Okay, um, yeah. I was really um, I had once I learned about mandalas and saw how much they helped me and and mm -hmm. other people in my class. I really wanted to teach it to the kids at the Arthritis Foundation events mm -hmm. um, that we were doing, and so I approached the Arthritis Foundation about it. And initially, they they said no. They said no. It's a little bit too new agey, foo foo kind of mm -hmm. thing. Back then, they weren't really open to more Eastern type, you know, yeah. therapies and such. So I was disappointed in that. But finally, 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 in um, I don't know, I think it was like 2001 or something like that. Um, maybe it was later, but they came to me and they said, yeah, you know what, we'd really love you to teach that class in our upcoming, That's you so know, great. education day for the kids. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm so excited. Finally, finally, I get to do this. And um, I had gone traveling. I had a vacation shortly before that event was supposed to happen. And I caught a cold on the plane coming back. Oh, no. And I lost my voice. Oh. And I was devastated. Like a week before the class, I lost my voice. And I'm like, oh, my God, OK, I just have to keep drinking and mm -hmm, doing the steam mm -hmm. stuff so that I could get my voice back. I've never had my voice gone for so long. It was gone all week and I had to cancel. I literally had to say, oh, I'm no. so sorry. I can't teach it because I have no voice. I mean, I, it was heartbreaking to me because I'd waited so long to do it. Yeah. And I couldn't understand like, why, why all of a sudden do I lose my voice when I've never lost it like this before? And it really threw me for a loop and I couldn't 
I really struggled for months. And then finally, one day I was just sitting, you know, having breakfast, reading a magazine. And I literally heard a voice in my head <laughs> say to me, so are you going to write that book now? You mm. don't need a voice to share what you need to share. And wow. I, I'm not crazy. I didn't, you know, no, no, no voices normally, but I had been so distraught by it and couldn't understand why, like, what's the message behind this? Right. And it finally just came to me. And that voice told me that it, I was relying too heavily on having to do it in person yeah. and that I had needed yeah. to open up my mind and um, uh, be willing to take the, the scary risk of starting to write a book. And so I did. I started that day. I said, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm just going to sit down and write an outline of a book. Yeah. And that's that's what it is. It's That's one of the funny things about growing up, I think, has been realizing that, you know, you don't have to wait for like a permission slip, you know, from the universe. Right. I think I was a very like do good <laughs> child, you know, goody two shoes. So I'm like, okay, I'm waiting for the permission. I'm, it's like, no yeah. one's going to, yeah. But anyway, I love that, that, that really, really distressing experience led you to the positive experience, you know, right. of making your book. And it is something that it can live, you know, from, you know, in 200 years, somebody could be using that book. That's what's really cool about right. it, I think. Right. Or hopefully they'll implant the book into their brain through technology <laughs> or something. <laughs> right. But right. yeah, that's so great. Well, you've inspired me for sure to make a mandala. And then the last thing I just want to make sure to touch upon before mm -hmm. we sadly have to wrap up in a little bit, but is um support groups. Cause I know you've had experience leading some in-person support groups and you also are the head moderator of rheumatoid disease, laughing, living, loving, and learning, which I love the name of that group on Facebook. Yeah. And, I, I would yeah. say I'm not the head moderator. Oh, there's, there's three of us co-moderators. Okay. Thank so you. I want to make sure we're, we're all even there because sorry, um, I'm always promoting people. I'm like, <laughs> you're a doctor. And they're like, no, I'm not. I'm like, oh, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, co-moderator. Co co-moderator. Yeah. Yes. Co-admin. Co that's the word. Co-lead yeah. admin. Yeah. Between three people. Okay. Yeah. And so, right yeah. Okay. Go on. Go on. Yeah. It is. Um, it is also one of my, I, I came to realize one of my callings in life was to help with support groups. I started uh, a couple friends and I in San Francisco or in the Bay area when I lived there, um, we all met through these JA task force events and it was mm -hmm. such a revelation to me to finally meet people my own age. So we just started getting together, you know, for like potluck lunches every month or so and, you know, getting to be closer and friends. And then eventually we said, you know, we should actually formalize this into a support group. Mm -hmm. And I went through the support group training through the arthritis foundation and they, you know, they, they supported us for a long time. Um, and I, I ran the group or co-led the group at, you know, in different stages with different mm -hmm. other leaders um, for about 10 years there. And then I needed to take a break. I was having some health issues. Um, but when I came back to Arizona, I got involved with the local group here that was, um, it was separate from the Arthritis Foundation. But um, after being in that group for a few years, uh, when the, the fellow who ran the group um, was about to retire, uh, my friend Samantha 
and I decided to co-lead that group. So mm-hmm. we co-led the, the face-to-face group here for a few years. And then again, I ran into health issues and I had to, had to back out of that. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, toward the end of that, I, was, I had been asked by Kim Berta, who had created this rheumatoid disease group um, on Facebook, um, if I would help her out because the group was growing and growing and growing and it was getting to be too much. So she has like four, is it have 26,000 people right now? Yeah. We have 26,000. When I first started, it was about Mm 5,000. And so she asked, uh, Nancy Cade and I to help her out. And so we, um, we helped to co-manage the group and co-admin and it's, it's really amazing. Uh, I feel like there's so many people out there who struggle with these diseases the rheumatoid disease umbrella is very large. Mm-hmm. You know, there's so many people that have different forms of it. And um, it's hard to get to in-person groups. And, and yeah. especially with COVID, there really aren't very many in-person groups anymore. Right. So right. Um, having access to support online is really important. And I think it helps people feel not so alone when yeah. this disease can be really isolating. Yeah. A hundred percent, you know, and I know there's, there's lots of ups and downs with, with admining a group. What are, uh, I'm curious, like, what are some, cause I think people need to give, uh, what's the word respect to the admins of, of these large groups, because you probably, cause I I've helped a little bit with a different group, um, just one day a week, but, um, man, the amount of spam that people try to put in every single day is hard, but, um, yeah, yeah. You have to constantly work to, to keep out those things that are harmful for people yeah. and, and really, you know, keep the group focused on what we're really here for. And that's mm-hmm. to help and support each other, share experiences, um, vent, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. people just need a safe place to vent mm-hmm. and, um, we're okay with that. You know, like if you need to come in and, 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 you know, say some swear words, but Mm -hmm. don't call people swear words, right? Exactly. If you're just expressing your frustration, you know, that's fine. Um, But we expect people to respect each other and respect each other's choices. Because some people choose not to do the medication route. Some people Mm -hmm. choose to go the health route. Some people choose to do the full medical route. Um, You know, there's a lot of different choices that we each have to make every day. And we have to just help and respect each other and, um, and no fighting, you know, none of that. And no, no spam. No. Yeah. We're not here to sell supplements. Right. (laughs) Well, yeah. And I'm, I'm curious, like, and this is like a longer conversation probably, but is it ever hard for you to see people who are so anti-medication when you got diagnosed before medication was available? Okay. Yes, that is really difficult for me because I I want people to understand that the invention of these medications are life-saving and life-changing. And when I look at kids today who are diagnosed with JIA or whatever, you know, the Mm -hmm. specific diagnosis might be, they have so many more options to not end up like me right? To not end up with the claw hand and so many joint replacements and having to not work, but not being able to work your full career. And I feel it's such a gift 
And so um, what we learned, you know, this is what time teaches you. Um, if you don't treat it aggressively from the beginning, then you set yourself up for much harder outcomes. Yeah. And I don't want people to end up that way. But, right. you know, all I can do is share my experience and others share their experience and each person gets to make up their own mind. But it yeah. is hard to watch people when you feel like they might be making the wrong decision, but they just don't know the consequences that they're going to suffer. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I struggle with that too, even though I haven't lived through, through what you have, I, but I've lived through the success story that is kind of characteristic mm -hmm. of, you know, maybe not the average patient isn't necessarily going into like a sustained complete Medicaid remission, but you know, at least I think 50% of patients now are having achieving quote unquote good. Oh, there was 70% in the latest I saw 70% of patients are having quote unquote good outcomes with current drug therapies. So I feel like I'm like chicken little, this guy is falling, but I'm also like, as an occupational therapist, I'm like, I can't give you medication advice, obviously. And even if I was right. a doctor, I couldn't give like random people on the internet medical advice anyway, right. but, but yeah, you're right. I think stories, storytelling is, is primal for all of us. Right. And so yeah. I, you can, you know, they can take a conclusions um, right. from the stories that they see of people who, um, you know, and it's not, and you've made so many, you've made, you know, um, a meaningful thriving life for yourself, but it hasn't been, I'm going to put, I'm, I would imagine it hasn't been easy with right. all the pain that you've had. Yeah. You know? So yeah, it's been difficult. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to sugarcoat. Yeah. It, but, um, well, thank you so, so much. Um, I did, I do always ask people at the end again, this is like, could be its own entire episode, but is there <laughs> anything in particular you like to share with like newly diagnosed patients? I mean, I guess probably along the lines that we we're just talking about <laughs> or anything else. Yeah. Um, okay. So I, I think my main um, recommendation is to find a really good rheumatologist that will work with mm -hmm. you as a partner that will listen to you and will um, share and answer your questions. Because I think it really has to be teamwork. And yeah. not everybody finds the right medication right off the bat. Sometimes you have to try a few ones and it can be, you know, um, a longer process, but you have to have that that good doctor to work with you, they're gold. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if you can oh. find a good one. And, and I, I feel like that that's where the, the success starts. Mm -hmm. And, and also I would say, and I know, I don't know if this is something that people can really understand, but don't be afraid of the medications. I think there's a lot of fear out there about the medications like yeah. uh, about different potential long-term side effects or other things, you know, educate yourself, but don't not do something because the fear has run amok, you know? Yeah. A hundred percent. I find it's interesting that people seem to be incredibly pessimistic about the meds and optimistic about the natural methods. And it's like, okay, you can't selectively, you can't only look at the potential downside of a medicine and only look at the potential upside of a supplement. Like you have to have the yeah. same amount of a, um, what's the word skepticism about both or like rigorous, you know, yeah. look at them both rigorously. And, you know, if you look at the data on the population level, not just individual anecdotes, but the population, you know, thousands and thousands of people, the medications clearly have a strongest evidence base. Yeah. Um, 
So, you know, um, it's, and yeah, you're, you're not comparing it to nothing. You're comparing it to a progressive disease. So right. you're, you can't be, you can't just be like, well, compared to not having this disease, it's like, yeah, well, yes, of course. Like you prefer yeah. not to have this disease, but, but yeah, right. well, I, I appreciate, I appreciate you, you saying that because again, they'll say like, well, you just think that because you got put on them and they work for you, but some people they don't work for. And it's like, but I'm also looking at it just trying to be really objective, you know? Right. So, yeah, I mean, this disease is progressively degenerative left to its own devices. It will destroy your parts of your body joints, soft tissue organs. I mean, yeah, it, that's what it does. It's not just arthritis as we like to say all the time. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. This is not your grandma's arthritis. Not your grandma. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much again for your time and for sharing. I will put all of your links in the show notes so people can find your book and the Facebook group and the mandalas. And I just, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk today. So thank you so much. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. It was great chatting with you. Thank you. Bye-bye for now. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Arthritis Life Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Room to Thrive, an educational program I created from scratch to help you go from overwhelmed to confident, supported, and connected in a matter of weeks. You can go through the pre-recorded course on your own, or you can take the course along with a support group. Learn more at the link in my show notes, or you can always go to www.myarthritislife.net. And if you like this podcast, I would be so honored if you took the time to rate and review it. I also encourage you to share it with anyone you know who might benefit from it. I also wanted to remind you that you can find full transcripts, videos, and detailed show notes with hyperlinks for each episode on my website, www.myarthritislife.net. If you have any ideas for future episodes, or if you want to share your story or wisdom on the podcast, just shoot me an email at info at myarthritislife.net. I can't wait to hear from you.